This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. One thing that I love asking guests on the show is what advice they would give to an up-and-coming designer. When I talked with UX Research Manager Reggie Murphy, I asked him what's the best advice he's been given about design. Keeping it simple is probably one of the biggest things because in, in UX research, you can research the world. <laughs> you know, the best advice that I've been given is to, you've got to really figure out what is the question that you're trying to answer and really design what you're doing against that specific question that you're trying to answer. And that's keeping it simple. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Cloud4 is looking for a front-end developer in Portland, Oregon. We also have job listings from Indeed.com, so head to the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to apply and to search for any other listings. Don't forget to sign up for weekly job alerts so when there are new positions added to the job board, you'll get an email so you can be the first to apply. And if you're looking for more jobs, then become a member of our Slack community and join the jobs channel. See you there. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I just want to remind you again that we're sponsoring the 2017 Black in Design Conference. That's going to take place October 6th through the 8th at the Harvard University Graduate School of Design. Activist and podcast host DeRay McKesson is going to be giving the closing keynote on Saturday, and general admission tickets are still on sale. I'll put a link down in the show notes so you can get yours today. Also, as I've mentioned, you know, for the past few weeks, we are donating 100% of our store sales this month to go towards Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. Those proceeds are going to go to the Hurricane Harvey Relief Fund that's put on at the Greater Houston Community Foundation, and Threadless is also chipping in and offering free shipping for the month for any orders over $45. So get your shop on and help out a great cause so we can get the people affected by Harvey back on their feet. That's at revisionpath.com forward slash store. The presenting sponsor for this week's episode is Videoblocks. Now, I'm pretty sure that we've all worked on a project or two where a client had these really big lofty ideas, including video, but they just didn't have the budget to pull it off. That's where Videoblocks can help. They've got millions of studio quality, royalty-free HD stock video clips, and new video clips are added regularly. So go to videoblocks.com forward slash revision path to get all the video stock footage you can imagine for just $149 a year. Videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com forward slash revision path. Now let's talk about our other sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. You know, anyone that has a small business, whether you're selling services or products, knows that sometimes when you're advertising, it feels like you're throwing your money into a black hole. Now, if you're using email marketing as part of your services, MailChimp can help you see exactly what's working and can give you the confidence to grow your business in your own way. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. 
Your online identity really begins with your domain name. People write to the show all the time asking, you know, how can I get my name out there as a designer? How can I build my personal brand? And it starts with a domain that tells people who you are and what your passion is. You know, that's what I did for myself. That's what I've done for all of my projects, including Revision Path. And Hover makes that process super simple. They've got hundreds of domain extensions, so you can choose something that's truly unique. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. SiteGround's hosting services are crafted for professional, business, or enterprise projects. They let you build better, faster, safer websites more easily, and they offer multiple hosting options that your websites can grow into. All plans have managed WordPress hosting, and they include staging and Git integration. Get started today by visiting SiteGround.com forward slash revision path. You can get 60% off on all hosting plans. 60%. SiteGround. Web hosting crafted with care. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to illustrator and senior UI UX designer, Francis Liddell. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Frances Liddell. I am a senior UX UI design professional slash illustrator in San Francisco. Tell me about some of the work that you're doing right now in San Francisco. So right now, I actually just recently got hired as a designer at Cisco Umbrella. Can't speak too much (laughs) as far as what I'm doing in particular in my role as I'm still going through the orientation process, but I will be working on their security platform. So that's providing UI user interactions for people who are trying to manage security. So basic set of users right now, as I understand them, are IT professionals and security analysts. And now how long has it been since you started working there? I'm on week four. (laughs) So I'm a newbie. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, you're really due then. Okay. Yeah. Prior to that, I was working at another company called Big Commerce. And what Big Commerce does is they do, they provide online stores for different merchants. So let's say that you're a merchant and you sell like some products online. That's kind of what they do. They provide the theme and everything that, you know, is kind of shopper facing. But beyond that, they don't just provide just a website on the internet. They also handle a lot of the business processes that go along with hosting your store online, inventory management, payment integrations, channel management, So basically everything that has to do with keeping a a real storefront up and running, that's kind of what I was doing there. Oh, nice. Yeah, I know there's a lot of competition in that sort of e-commerce range. There's big commerce, there's there's Shopify, which I think a lot of people know about. There's even some other types of more built-in solutions like Society6 or Redbubble or something like that, where you have a store on another platform. But this is sort of more of a DIY type of option. Yeah, I would say that big commerce is different than like Society Six and the fact that like it's. I feel like Society Six is more like to me like an Etsy or like a Zazzle or something like that. Big commerce is kind of more mid market enterprise level, although they do still you know support a lot of small businesses. But I think that when I think of big commerce storefront, I would think of like oh, what was his name? He's like a fashion designer. 
Oh, it's killing me. His name is LaShawn something. But he designs like a, a lot of these really nice fashions that you'd see Cardi B wearing, for instance, on Instagram. You know, okay. so you know, or beyond luxury brands, also like, you know, some everyday type of websites. But it's not boutique necessarily. They kind of like skew more corporate style websites as well. So they have a different place in the market. I got you. Okay. Well, since you can't really talk about your current work too much, and I completely understand that, let's take a step back. When did you first get started in design? What was sort of the, you know, how Oprah talks about having like an aha moment. What was your aha moment when you realized that this is what you wanted to do? So that's actually a really good one. I have a bunch of little aha moments that kept like, you know, thinking like, this is what I need to do. But I think The one that really stands out to me was when I was in high school. I've always been into art, always been into drawing. That's always just been like a thing for me. And that honestly is the entry point for me into design was through illustration. You know, my parents knew that I was interested in art and that's just a thing that I always did and was super into. However, they encouraged it. You know, they encouraged it. But they encouraged it as a hobby. (laughs) They did not encourage it as a legitimate profession (laughs) that be like self-sustaining type of career out of it. They mostly thought of it as like, well, it's a nice thing that kind of keeps her quiet and happy. (laughs) So sitting in there drawing all day is harmless. And they really were kind of pushing me towards medicine because or of some kind, like because I was really good in biology and I loved animals and things. So maybe I would be a veterinary doctor or something, a veterinarian, or go into uh, some other type of medicine. And I I drank that Kool-Aid for a while, to be honest. I really did. So (laughs) I really thought, well, maybe they're right, because I would go on these little career pages that they had at our school that were very dated, but they would run like this little program where you would enter in like, oh, what you, you know, your profession of choice. And then it would spit back out like your possible salary. And I was like, wow, I don't want to make 19000 a year. <laughs> and that's what I would get from like anything that I pushed in that was for art or, or design related. But anyway, so I started focusing more on kind of biology and that stuff. So I was selected to go to the National Youth Leadership Forum on Medicine. And I chose to come out to San Francisco as one of the locations where they would take students. So There's only a limited amount of students that are picked for this program a year, and they have them in different cities. So anyway, went out to San Francisco and went to all these different campuses, and they would tour you around to all the different hospitals and just get this really in-depth talks and things like that for people who were medical students or were actively, you know, doing some kind of form of medical research, yada, yada, yada. And so there was this one speaker who really stood out to me. And she was like, don't go into this profession of medicine unless it's something that you're really super passionate about. She said, don't go in it for money, because if you go in it for money, you're really not going to be a great, amazing practitioner. You're just going to be a mediocre practitioner. And she said she had two friends of hers who started in medical school And they found out that it really wasn't for them. So they switched to being interior designers. 
And now they're very successful interior designers because they found that it was like a really a good passion area for them. They were enthusiastic about it. They woke up every day excited about doing that. They didn't have the same motivation around medicine. So I thought about that as I left to go back to the dorm where they had all the students that were attending this. And I looked in, when I entered my room, I looked around the walls and stuff and I had been drawing the whole trip and taping up my little drawings on the walls. And I was like, I'm going to have to go back home and tell my folks that this is what I want to do. I want to be an art major. I don't didn't know precisely what type of art or creative area that I was going to be in, but it was definitely not medicine. <laughs> so I went home and it took a really long time to muster the courage to actually break it to my folks that I wanted to have this focus because my mom kept, and I love my parents, and it was really cute because <laughs> she was so proud. She was like, we're going to have the first doctor in the family. <laughs> and she told this to all of my aunts and uncles, <laughs> to the people at the post office, to the guy bagging the groceries. And, and it was just like every time she said it, I kind of cringed like, oh, I'm going to have to tell her. So finally, I told her and the darkest look crossed her face. It was, you know, (laughs) but, you know, I kind of stuck with it and I was like, this is what I want to do. And so that was kind of like my moment and also kind of like me pushing for what I really wanted, because in the end, like I didn't want to go down a path just because of what my parents' expectations were. I wanted to go down a path because of what I wanted in life. So that's kind of like what kind of like push me onto this path for good. So you said your parents kind of, <laughs> they kind of thought that this was a hobby. And then now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I want to do this for real. What was the next step after that? So the next step after that was me looking at different design schools or just different art schools in general and applying to just a broad range of different universities. So I actually really was looking at Uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. And Mm -hmm. I applied there. And then there was one other that I cannot think of right now, but it was on the East Coast. I want to say it was like Moore College of Art and Design. It was like a smaller art school. And so I applied there and I also applied to Jackson State University, which both my parents worked at. Um, Maybe some of your listeners might know Dr. Liddell. (laughs) Dr. Louis Liddell Sr. was my father. He was a director of band at Jackson State University for the Sonic Boom of the South. And then my mom worked in public policy and administration. That was Dr. Lily Frances Payne Liddell. So she worked, both of them worked there for a number of years. So I applied to both, into all these schools, and I got scholarships from three of them. So I had two partial scholarships. I had a partial scholarship at Moore. I think that was their name. Forgive me if I'm screwing that up. It's been ages. (laughs) And then there was a SCAD, which I did get a scholarship from them too, but it was again partial. And I had a full scholarship from JSU. So I went to JSU. (laughs) So So, I mean, I went there because mainly it just made sense financially And I think my parents, even though I was like totally fine with being like, oh, you know, whatever, I'll get a student loan. My parents kind of were like, well, we don't want you to leave school with owing a whole lot of money. 
after going to grad, you know, not grad school, after going to undergrad, they would, they would rather that I didn't have that burden. And, you know, SCAD honestly was really expensive. And I also thought that it also, I, I think another part of it was this kind of hope that I would switch majors. <laughs> and that, hmm. that never happened. <laughs> So I went to JSU and my first year was 97 going to JSU. Yeah. So you had that kind of legacy, I guess, coming in in a way, right? Did that help out any? I mean, aside from, like you said, not having to pay, but do you feel like once you got there that it helped you out any? Well, I want to make this point point clear, though. Like I had a tuition waiver, although it didn't mean that I didn't, I get a, like a totally free ride because my parents worked there. A lot of my scholarship came from my ACT scores and my SAT scores. So I tested really well, which is reason why I got like a full scholarship. Yeah. So that, okay. yeah, just want to make that clear. It was not like some weird nepotism <laughs> from JSU or whatever. <laughs> I got you. All right. But to answer, go back to your question. So I think that it, helped in a way for sure I could just go to like skip lines for registration that other students <laughs> had to do I would just be uh-huh. like hey mama daddy can you please like sign me up for my classes <laughs> <laughs> and get through there I still had to suffer through going to financial aid department though for like the release of my grants which was super irritating still had to go through the pain of going to the housing department that I know a lot of other students do because I lived off campus. No, no, I lived on campus. I didn't want to live like at home with my parents. And another was that, as, you know, everybody knew my folks, which is a good and a bad thing. It's a good thing in the sense that there are perks in a way that, you know, oh, I can maybe they have some colleagues on on campus that will kind of like help me get things done a little bit faster but there are downsides in that everybody knows my parents. And so, you know, it didn't mm. really feel like, you know, a lot of other students have this feeling of going off to school where I felt like almost like not fully out from under my parents' watch, kind of. Do you know what I mean? That's what it kind of felt like. I got you. What was your time like there, just I think in general? Like, I think of HBCUs in the 90s as being lit. Like, I'm basing this largely off of a different world and thinking about, like, just how amazing the whole Black college... I feel like the HBCU slash Black college experience was so live in the 90s because it was in the movies, it was in television, it was in the music. Like, what was that time like for you when you were at Jackson State? Well, hmm, how do I say... <laughs> I, I didn't, you know what? It's nothing. <laughs> I'm really proud of my experience at JSU. There were some things that I really liked, you know, and there are some things that were less than stellar. Like I really liked, you know, the experience of of being, you know, quote unquote, away from home, but I'm still in my hometown. <laughs> you know, going to my parents' house to do laundry. There was really great experience. Was being able to kind of have a larger pool of friends. That was one that was really great. Even though I would still see some people who went to my high school, went to JSU, um, but there was not that feeling of, I don't know, I didn't have to interact with anyone that I didn't need to interact with. You know, I had my like broader click 
I also really love the camaraderie and stuff in the design department and how everyone like would wait or just like the passion that the students had around that, that whole department. Like you would see art, and design students waiting right in front of the doors to the graphic design lab because they really were excited about getting their work done there. You know, like really early morning, just waiting for it to open and stuff. That was something that stands out to me. Most of this is actually just like around the design department (laughs) that I'm talking around right now because Mm -hmm. most of my time was spent with kind of like the other, you know, art majors and stuff like that. So going to the mixers, getting to know everyone, getting to see kind of what work they were doing. I didn't really go to a whole lot of the university's kind of activities. I wasn't, I I didn't pledge anything. I was very me, fi, me. (laughs) Not into a sorority or anything like that. I was more like, you know, I'd have my little circle of friends or I would be like in the design school over there, the design department, busting out my work, or I would borrow my dad's car, (laughs) you know, from the (laughs) band hall. But yeah, like, I think part of me felt like I've always kind of been around like colleges and stuff as my parents are both kind of always worked in academia. And so maybe I didn't have that newness about it as a lot of other people I felt like had. Like, I went to away games, you know, when I was in high school, right? You know, I would just be like, oh, my dad's in the band. I can go to this game that everyone's going to. I would say, like, as far as litness is concerned, the Sonic Boom was lit. Like, I thought it would be so cool to be a J-Set, although, like, I would honestly never make the cut. (laughs) But, like, when you saw them coming... You could just hear, you honestly could hear them before you they showed up. You could just hear just the unison of March. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not articulating this very well, but you could just hear them coming up from yeah. out of the stadium before you even saw them, like the solid, like, boom, boom, boom of their heels. And you got mm-hmm. out of their way when they threw those kicks. You know, it was like, I, I loved, I loved seeing like, you know, that drill team. I really loved that experience. And it was something really cool. And you could just feel like that energy from the band. Like everybody loved the boom. (laughs) And honestly, a lot of the time, most people would come to a JSU football game just to see the band sometimes Mm -hmm. and then leave at halftime after halftime was over. (laughs) That's a special experience that I feel that I don't know if this is like just a specific black Southern thing. Cause I've, I mean, I went to Morehouse and so Mm -hmm. I, have talked to other people that are from other parts of the country and they've been sort of mystified by the mystique that comes around black college bands in the South, like Jackson state. I'm going to geek out here for a little bit because I, I was in marching band in high school (laughs) and I am a huge marching band aficionado. Mm -hmm. Jackson state is hands down. So influential in their sound, well, them and FAMU. I gotta, I gotta put FAMU in there. Sorry, yeah. but in, in, <laughs> <laughs> I know my tigers out there will know what I'm talking about. Love the boom, Sunny Boom of the South. <laughs> hey, listen, I, I played. I was, I was section I leader in my trombone section, and we modeled ourselves after Jackson State in terms of like volume and like choral patterns and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But just in terms of when you talk about. J setting, which for people that are listening, the J sets are like the like the dance team sort of. Oh yeah, when it's kind of I guess kind of a good way to put it. (laughs) 
Yeah, but like their influence is something that even Beyonce uses, Mm -hmm. who is a black girl from the South. But you know what I mean? Like their influence is just, it trickles down to other college bands. It certainly trickled down to high school bands and probably even, you know, more than that. So, I mean, Jackson State, I... (laughs) It's so influential in terms of their sound, their their movements and everything like that. So that can't be I don't want to downplay that at all. Mm-hmm. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> I'm just teasing. That's that's me on my that's me on my little band soapbox right there. I had to put that part out there. Well, I'm sure, you know what, when this is replayed again, I'm sure that like my dad will be really proud that, you know, his work in the band, a lot of people will look to that and were inspired by that. Yeah, and and on and I'm just joking, teasing about FAMU. It's not that serious. <laughs> no, it's not that serious. But yeah, so like for me, that part of it, I kind of experienced that like whole band, like being excited about that type of stuff and that kind of energy. Like when I was in high school, because I would, you know, go with my you know parents to some of those away games, and I would love to go to away games because it was an excuse to get away from school. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, mostly, like I said, like mostly my experience was, you know, at JSU was kind of like around the design department and getting to know that building and like basically staying in there and being dedicated to what I was doing, like hours, just hours just spent late at night in there working because I didn't have like a computer that would run any of the design software yet. So mm-hmm. that was kind of like my only way to really get any of that, those types of projects done. But I would just live on those, just trying to figure out, you know, how to use it back when it was like all this freehand. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Took it back. Yeah. Like it was like that. And, and I know that there's tons of students there who are just as de- dedicated. Yeah. And honestly, like a lot of that came out from the relationship we had with our professor. He was John Jennings. He was actually um, my first graphic design teacher and instructor mm. and, and considered him like one of my mentors at the time that kept me kind of in, in, you know, in design and interested in design was like really an inspiration. He really helped, I think the university understand the power and impact of design because he did one of the first redesigns of the JSU logo. So I think that was a huge part of my college experience. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting to hear about Jackson State having this, I almost want to say like this legacy of graphic design, because when I think people look at HBCUs in general, design is not one of the things that people look at as a byproduct of that, if that makes any sense. Like people think of when you think of things that HBCUs produce in terms of graduates, it's it's doctors and, and lawyers and mm-hmm. people that go on to do big business and stuff like that. I mean, I did some work with AIGA as part of their DNI task force, diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we did was reach out to HBCUs to try to get an idea of like what design departments are there, what are they doing? Cause we wanted mm-hmm. to try to bridge that gap between AIGA, which is something that a lot of design schools have student groups at, but there are very few student groups at HBCU. So we were trying to kind of bridge that gap. And I mean, Jackson State is probably one of the few that we ever heard anything back from mm. in terms of like what was going on. So it's, it's really interesting to see that, like, I mean, from the 90s to now that there's been such an active and vibrant kind of design department that's going on there that I don't know if a lot of people even know about that. 
And then this is the hard thing, too, about that time. The time that I joined JSU, I didn't really feel, originally didn't really feel that there was really strong design community there initially. And it didn't, Mm -hmm. and like you go to a career fair, no one was there to hire designers. No one was looking for design students at the, you know, the career fairs to school. It's like, this is a waste of time for me to go to these things. No one knows that we're, we exist here. And to be quite frank, you know, there was a point where the art department almost lost funding because Hmm. the school, and I I don't know how much I should say about that. If I'm going to be totally honest about my experience at JSU, that was definitely part of it. And it was, it was that concern that the school was more interested, I felt, in the sports program, more interested in, you know, technology and science departments and stuff like that than they were at the time around art and design. And I think if it weren't for some of the efforts from very devoted and interested students, as well as very driven faculty members, it might have been a very different story. So that's what I think I think of when I think of that time was that for me, it was like a, a time where I was like kind of frustrated, too, that I was like, uh-huh. why are we not as important to the rest of the school <laughs> as as we should be? Like my education is important, too. That's really how I felt. And it really took a lot of the efforts from, like I said, like I give full props to the teachers who were there around the time that I came there because they really did kind of fuel that energy in the students. And they also kind of helped keep things going because I feel like it's a symptom. This is just my opinion. I feel like that the attitudes that I experienced around design when I was first trying to get into the field and first trying to shift into this major, a lot of the people considered it just like my parents did, that it was and from a very uneducated place that it was, time, that it was not as important as some of these other degrees were. That's the impression that I got. But I'm glad that it's shifted. And, you know, I think that's that's a really, that's true. It's certainly very fair. And like you say, it speaks to your experience. When I was doing research for this presentation I put together called Where Are the Black Designers? Mm-hmm. One of the people who I spoke with, or the main person I spoke with, I should say, for the project was Cheryl D. Miller, mm. who uh, she was a designer at Pratt in New York, and she put together this thesis where she interviewed parents and students and educators, et cetera, about why there weren't more black designers in the industry. This was like in the like mid to late 80s, right? Mm-hmm. And many of those same reasons that you just mentioned are the reasons that that is the case. A lot of it tend to stem from uh, family and from community, mm-hmm. not really valuing or knowing the value, mm-hmm. I should say, of design yeah. to know that it's a viable option for a career. They wanted them to go into something that was more stable. Or practical. Right? Or practical. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, yeah, like you say, kudos to the teachers there that really were the ones that kind of were fueling the fire to make that happen. With all of that, and not to dwell too much on Jackson State, oh, but yeah. I do want to ask this. You know, as a student there, did you feel like you were part of a larger design community outside of Jackson State? Uh, no. <laughs> I felt like there okay. was, you know, and, and I think that I honestly didn't realize that 
I knew there was a bigger world of it, but, you know, I didn't know of, of AIGA. I didn't know of any of those types of organizations, Art Director Club or Graphic Design. What was it? Graphic Design Guild or Graphic Artist Guild or whatever. I, I was not aware of any of those organizations that any mm-hmm. of that type of those types of organizations or institutions existed. I really didn't. I knew that there obviously were design studios, that there were people out there who were working in design, who designed everything, you know, design logos, design this, that, and the other. But I, I couldn't name one while I was there, to be honest. And I think the main thing I felt was just like lack of support from, I guess, like the community. Or like, if you talk to any of the other students there, they didn't know what design was really. They're like, oh, yeah. you know, so like you make logos, right? <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, you design business cards? Yes, that's exactly it. I, I designed just business cards. Um, <laughs> it was kind of rough. And honestly, it was, you know, for a long time, I felt like bitter about it. But yeah. now looking back, I feel that, you know, JSU was a good place for me to be. I'm glad that I had the HBCU experience to be honestly immersed in blackness. Like I hadn't had, especially now, having graduated from a PWI, it's something that you take for granted and that you kind of miss when you go through that kind of shift, I guess, in in culture and people. But yeah, I had a lot of bitterness around that experience at JSU, but there was a lot of greatness out of it too. I think I got a lot of the fundamentals that helped me get my first design job in Jackson, Mississippi. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'll be honest with you, you know, like you said, you didn't feel like that support was really coming from these design organizations. And oh, it didn't exist. Yeah. It's that same way now. I can tell you, I mean, from my work with AIGA, even from just talking to students in general that will write to me that they somehow stumbled across something like they stumbled across Revision Path, they stumbled across me on AIGA's website. And they're like, I had no idea any of this existed. I'd never even heard of XYZ. These design organizations do a piss poor job Mm -hmm. of reaching out to HBCUs. The only schools they reach out to are ones that are in that kind of direct art school pipeline. Mm -hmm. So if you're at a SVA or a MICA or RISD or Pratt or, Mm -hmm. you know, something like that, of course they're going to roll out the red carpet. But if you're a design student that happens to be at maybe not a design school. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're at an HBCU. Maybe you're at a, a PWI. Maybe you're at a community college. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yep. No kind of outreach. It is terrible. Like what you're describing, it's the same way now, 25 plus years later. It's ridiculous. And it's really frustrating because it's like without having an external design community to feed into these students, you don't really have any idea what's waiting for you on the outside, really. You really don't, unless you go and do your own research. So at the time when I was going to school, I couldn't name any Black designers. Like, now it's totally different. There's a lot more visibility with all these social media apps. (laughs) This makes me sound super old, but I was around before (laughs) social media. No, but, (laughs) you know, it's, it's for real. It's like, you know. So I kind of envy the access sometimes these kids have, like, now coming up. And I'm, like, grateful that they have that access. But when I was coming up... If you Google black designers, nothing comes up. Mm. Nothing really came up. And like, I remember like being super excited when I found out that there were black designers who worked kind of invisibly in these different organizations doing these different things or who just I just wasn't exposed to because it just wasn't 
I don't know. It just it was just wasn't the access was not there. Yeah. You know, the opportunity for to educate myself around it wasn't there. But yeah, like it's a shame and it doesn't make any sense because you know what is funny is that a lot of these other schools will go to high schools around the area. You know, we had SCAD visit before also yeah, students yeah. about opportunities and stuff like that. So they will go and they will recruit from these different high schools or whatever. But it's so strange that AIGA, they're not really about that visibility. I see it in, in writing, but I don't really see it in action. I don't mm-hmm. see any action around it. I, <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah, but you, that's true. I see you taking action. <laughs> You know, this podcast I mean, is huge. To me, this podcast yeah, is I mean, awesome. That's, that's true, yeah. And don't get me wrong. I've worked with AIGA, so I've, I've seen what it's like on the inside. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I don't want to give away – I don't want to say I don't want to give away stuff because I mean, I don't work for AIGA, but right. I also don't want to talk down about it because they do do some good things. But they also know what they don't do well. And honestly, I don't see much happening where they try to correct that behavior. Yep. Part of it is just because there's just a lot of – it's an old organization. It's over a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. And honestly, what happens at headquarters is different from what happens at chapters. Mm-hmm. There are some chapters that are really great and work independently. There are some chapters that are terrible. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people that have bad experiences with AIGA tend to have it from a chapter level, not necessarily from a national level, mm-hmm. which is not really an excuse because, you know, the, the fish rots at the head, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not really an excuse if that sort of happens, but I mean, you take Jackson State, for example, that's in Mississippi. There's no, from what I remember, at least, there's no AIGA student groups in Mississippi. Uh -uh. The closest one from Jackson State is in Baton Rouge. So unless you go to another state, Uh how are you going to be exposed to that? You know what I mean? Or Honestly, if they were really interested, and this is something I've talked about before, as far as like reaching out to people where they are. As opposed yeah. to expecting people to just know to come to you. They mm-hmm. know HBCUs exist. <laughs> oh, they know. They they are aware. <laughs> if they weren't if they weren't aware before I came on the task force, they are aware. You know, they know HBCUs exist. They know who has art departments and who doesn't. And if they really are taking it to heart as a mission to be inclusive, to want to increase visibility of people of color and specifically black people mm-hmm. in the design community and reach these black students and encourage them to pursue design excellence in in the industry, then they need to go to where they are. They need to provide resources. They need to reach out to educators at these universities. And I don't see any of that work happening Mm-hmm. I also haven't been close, and and, I, and this is in all honesty, I have, I have not been close to you know academia in a minute, so I can't speak specifically if to like uh, any any I guess first person experience with it, other than what I experienced when I was going to school. But I didn't hear hide or hair of of anything like AIGA until I came to San Francisco. Then it was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is an established design community. Of course, okay. they have like AIGA and all these other, you have, a, you know, SF Design Week. There's a whole San Francisco Design Week yeah. with events and design studios all over the place. And that just was not part of things when I was in Mississippi. Now, they did have, I think, an intercollegiate, Mississippi intercollegiate art competition or something like that, that did okay. happen with some schools. 
in the area. But other than that, we didn't even have, there was no, at least to me and in my experience, I didn't feel like there was even any connection with other schools in the area, like a common venue or a common Uh organization that we all were a part of outside of our little bubbles where you definitely have that in San Francisco. Like you go to an AIGA conference and as a student and you meet students who are studying graphic design, UX design, whatever, that go to a variety of different schools in the area. So you get to interact with different communities. I didn't really feel that going to JSU. I wonder if design students are even feeling that now that are at HBCUs. That's that's a good point. That's a really good point. Let's move to San Francisco. Let's talk about that because, of course, that's where you spent your adult design life. For the most part, you went to what was the school? Academy of Art University, right? Mm-hmm. In San Francisco after you graduated from Jackson State. So what was that kind of difference like? I mean, you're, you described a little bit of it just now, but what else was the difference between going from that HBCU experience to this PWI experience at a strict art school? My experience at Academy of Art University. So just going to go back a little bit. So I had graduated JSU in 2001. I was working a little while at, as like an in-house designer at this architectural firm for two and a half years. And then I was like, oh, you know, am I going to grow anymore or am I going to stagnate or whatever? So I was like, either I get a new job and maybe learn that way or I go back to school and, you know, just go ahead and get my master's. So I did a whole lot of research before I went. So it was either going to be someplace in New York, maybe Atlanta, Chicago, or it was going to be San Francisco. So chose Academy of Art, came out here in 2003, and it was my first real experience living in a big city, (laughs) you know, so there was that. And I was really excited. Just, it was just really a different experience. It was just a, a whole different cultural experience coming here downside was there was not a lot of like black people at all like <laughs> which was really kind of strange because you know you go to Jackson you see lots of black people everywhere from all walks of life and here it's just like you don't even see that much difference in the types of black people that you meet it's just it just seemed like it's just very strange experience so there was that and then there was going to academy of art itself so i consider that like a very tough decision, but also one of the best decisions I've ever made in my adult life was to come to San Francisco because I felt like all these things that I considered these little gaps in my understanding and design come sliding into place. I was exposed to grid in a way I wasn't before and typography in a way I wasn't kind of didn't really have a formal education around typography until I went to Academy of Art. At Jackson State, it was more like around composition and experimental kind of typography and imagery Uh as opposed to being like kind of very strictly Swiss. I think Academy of Art also I felt like was, and maybe, I don't know if it was just the major or (laughs) it definitely was the major. Graphic design, I think the, the School of Graphic Design at Academy of Art is one of the most difficult majors at Academy of Art. We had to do 10 hours per class, per project, minimum. 
and it's wow. and it, it showed if you didn't put in the effort too. Mm-hmm. So I think there was a really a whole lot of good that came out of it. Also, there was again like that was a very my first semester was a very tough semester. I actually like I actually failed two classes my first semester, and my parents were like, "Oh, you should just come back." Da da da, and I was like, "No, <laughs> no one's gonna." <laughs> No one's going to tell right. me. You, get, you got a taste of the big city. I'm not going back. No, it was it was for real. <laughs> like, well, it, it kind of goes back to what I was telling you maybe before we even started an interview about like being not wanting to be that cautionary tale that people talk about. Like, oh, what happened to yeah. that country black girl from Mississippi? Oh, she failed and she didn't come back again. Oh, OK. I didn't want to be that. Wow. I didn't want to be a story of failure that someone told about me. So and so you you have all that pressure on top of the the regular pressure of just getting through the courses and that stuff that your other classmates don't have to deal with. Absolutely not. I don't believe any of them really had to deal with it on that level. I'll say like the makeup of my class would be oddly enough like mostly female, which actually isn't that unusual in design. I feel like the most designers I've been around like have been women. And then the demographics would break down between white and Asian, and then everyone else kind of fit into other. That's kind of the breakdown of everything. I also felt like I didn't have as many resources as some other students did for sure. Like my projects were very limited. You know, the output of my projects were very limited by my budget. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, teachers would be like, oh, you should get this special brass treatment or engraving. And I'm like yeah, that sounds really expensive. So I'm going to print this out in paper. (laughs) It's going to be just fine. (laughs) Listen, you know, I hear you. But yeah, I think that 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 was something that I don't think a lot of other students had to worry about either. I mean, I would say that I didn't feel 100% isolated because of my blackness. I feel like there was a lot of camaraderie around students because we found common ground in the fact that We're all going through this tough process together. We would meet up and have student kind of the same passion that a lot of the students I had uh, JSU had around, like getting to the lab early and hunkering down and doing your work. That's some of the same vibe I got from the other design students, too. Like we would stay up late at night and be just like busting our asses on projects like I would not sleep. And right alongside me, like I knew that this other girl in my apartment would upstairs for me that she was probably still busting her ass on her project, too. So I would like be like, hey, my printer is like possessed and it's not (laughs) operating correctly. Do you mind if I come up and and use yours or whatever? And it's this great feeling of camaraderie that I did have. And it was around not around race so much as it was around just the fact that we're going through this tough program altogether. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the state of the design industry today? Because it sounds like there certainly were experiences as you were coming up as a designer educationally that honestly, and I'm not saying this, you know, in any sort of a demeaning way, but it's the kind of stuff that would make you not want to be in this industry. It would make you want to get out and do something else. What do you think of design industry today? I think that it's very different than my experience was when I was coming through. I think that there are a lot of great things. Like for one, there's visibility. You don't have to go too far to for you to see people like you only because of 
the internet and social media, there's a lot more visibility. And so you can connect with people that way. I think that unlike what it was like when I was going to enter the industry in the first time, I would say like there's more specialization. And if you're a designer, when around the time that maybe you were coming up to, <laughs> you were just a designer. You did everything. Mm-hmm. It was very much like a generalist role. There really wasn't a lot of specialization. Specialization seems to only have come about in the last 15 years, feels like, where it's like, yeah. well, are you a graphic design? And graphic design being very narrowly focused on brand marketing and usually like print collateral or packaging or signage and stuff like that, where, or you're either that or you're a UX designer or in in the interaction space where it's like, okay, you do work for screens and you do apps and stuff. Where when I was coming up, it was like, you just did all, all of it. You're a designer, right? You design everything. So I think that's something that's a little different to me, which is really weird too, in a way, because... I don't think it really provides a lot of flexibility for people to draw them into boxes. Like in a way it is really helpful because you have very specific skill sets for very specific areas. You can become a really good expert in one particular area, but what if the industry shifts? How adaptable could you be if for some reason it shifts back in a different direction or Mm -hmm. in your area, like maybe the, the print house you work for, (laughs) It's so funny now, but like, the, you know what I mean? But like you're working in print mainly and then that suddenly no longer becomes a viable option for you. And the only industry that's there is now strictly focused in tech. I think that, yeah, that's kind of the way I feel around things. I think there's like definitely some benefits to how things are now and there's some drawbacks too. Yeah, even like with titles, I mean, like you say, it's changed so much with how the industry has changed. Like, when I started doing this show, I feel like designers were <laughs> the most designers I ran into. It was like everybody was a UX designer. <laughs> everybody was doing UX. And then as this show and this show has only been around for like a little under five years, four and a half years mm-hmm. now. Now everyone's a product designer. Oh, yeah. Everyone's doing products. Oh, yeah. I'm b- before it was UX. <laughs> it, yeah. Before it was UX, you were a just web designer. Mm-hmm. Before a web designer, you were a web master. Like it's it's. It changes with, you know, how the industry changes. And then also it can be defined about where you work, like a product designer at one company, maybe a totally different role at another company, Mm -hmm. but it's the same title. So you might be doing different things. And so, yeah, it does kind of set designers on these rigid paths. And I wonder how they break out of that to really innovate in any way. If they're even interested in that, honestly. And I think that that's, it's really stifling too. So like, let let me talk about this part. When I first started in UX, I kind of started as a visual designer. Now, we all know visual design is, it's basically an application of style guides and, and all that good stuff, right? But it also was very limiting because I'd be sometimes handed wireframes that don't adhere to the patterns that are well-established already. So there was a lot of pushback. Let's talk about like, you know, how it pigeonholes people into those roles. I believe, I believe this. I believe that people aren't just all one dimensional, that they have bring a lot of different sets to the team. And honestly have are composed of a combination of different, I guess they like a combo of those three things of research, researcher, 
visual designer and interaction designer. And then they just kind of have percentages that break across as far as like where they tend to lean. So there's some people who maybe they are just really purely visual design or they maybe they just are really purely, you know, research focused. But there are a lot of people out there who are hybrids of one or two or, or more of those areas. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I, I think it is kind of stifling to be forced into just one bucket. I've never liked that. So with what you're doing right now, and again, I know we can't talk too much about kind of your current work, but what are you excited about at the moment? I would say that my current work, I would say this, I'm really excited about researching the product and really getting to know my team. Like, as I said, like I just newly started. (laughs) Also getting to know a new group of users. And it's really challenging so far because our users are so technically focused. Whereas in my previous roles, I felt like, I could step more easily into the mindset of like, oh, you know, I am the user and this is kind of like how I would go about things. Like when I was at Workday, I could say like, you know, the user was a worker in an organization who's trying to fill out their PTO forms or whatever. You know, you could step into that place. Same with big commerce. You could step in and be like, okay, I'm an owner of a storefront. What would I do where this is more... Like <laughs> it speaks in a language that's like very technical to me and no one and my team assures me no one has come from a, you know, a security background, a mature, more majority of the team hasn't. And so it just takes time to get ramped up. But I'm really excited about that part. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to be working on? Gosh, that's like a really hard question. Hopefully I'll be working on projects that still interest me. <laughs> That I'm Mm -hmm. hoping that I never get bored. There'll never be a moment where I'm like, gosh, like, I really hate what I'm doing. (laughs) You know what I mean? I hope that I'll continue to be building interesting experiences. I'm hoping that I'll, in the future, we'll, we'll have more background in research, which I'm actually interested in kind of augmenting my skill set a bit more to understanding more research methods in UX. And also, I'm hoping to do more of my own illustration work. Nice. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? Sure. You can always reach out to me. My website is francisliddell.com, F-R-A-N-C-E-S-L-I-D-D-E-L-L.com. That's where I have most of my design work. And you can find me on Twitter at Francis underscore L, that is my protected account. Or you can find me in my public kind of geeky gaming account at Fran C Pants. <laughs> so it's Fran and then S E A P A N T S on Twitter. All right. Well, sounds good. Well, Francis Liddell, I want to thank you again so much for, for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing what your experience was like studying design at an HBCU. You know, we're doing this during what we call HBCU month here at Revision Path. I try to do it every year. And I think it's really important to show that perspective for a few reasons. One, I went to an HBCU. Two, HBCUs are super important in terms of just the cultural and collegiate fabric of this country. And three, when we look at higher education, and I think everything that we've been taught and fed into, and even with how the industries are, 
going to a good school and learning whatever it is you're going to learn factors very heavily into your career, into your way of life after that. So I really want to know what that's like at HBCUs. But I mean, I think aside from that, you know, you've really been able to show this amazing amount of persistence and and drive to stick through what seemed like at the time, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, but at the time it seemed like it wasn't working out. You might have wanted to give up, but you stuck through it. You you saw it through to the end, and now you're at a point where you're a successful designer in your career. And I think it's just really admirable to hear that. I think your story is amazing. I just want to thank you again so much for coming on the show. And thank your dad for being such an influence in just band culture in general. Just pass that on to him for me. But but no, thank you really for coming on the show. I appreciate that. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Francis Liddell and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Francis and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, Hover, and SiteGround. Facebook designers work on creative products that are used by over 2 billion people. Their mission is to make the world more open and connected, and they use design to create prototypes, shape experiences, and ultimately solve problems as well. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. Whether you need to sell your products, share some big news, or tell a story, MailChimp makes it easy to create campaigns that best suit your message. Automate your marketing efforts, put your data to work, and watch the results roll in. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Every great idea deserves a great domain name, and Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domains. They offer pre they offer free private domain registration, your choice of hundreds of domain extensions, and you can connect those domains to your favorite web service. Share your passion online today. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Since 2004, SiteGround has been all about empowering web professionals and beginners alike to build better, faster, safer websites easily without having to worry about hosting. Visit SiteGround.com forward slash revision path to get 60% off on all hosting plans. SiteGround, web hosting crafted with care. Also, don't forget about the presenting sponsor for this week's episode, VideoBlocks. Go to videoblocks.com forward slash revision path to get all the stock footage you can imagine for $149 a year. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com forward slash revision path. Save on millions of studio quality clips from Videoblocks. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do us a huge favor. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. It only takes a minute or two. It really, really helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings there for Design Podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Visit us at yepitslunch.com for all your design, strategy, and creative consulting needs. And if you like the work that we're doing here at Revision Path, then please consider becoming a patron. You know, now more than ever, Revision Path needs your support to make sure that stories about black designers and creatives in our field are being told in their own words. So if you support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge today. 
For just $5 a month, you can get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.